swim towards those memories, towards those behaviors that you actually think are going to kill you. Um, because it's in turning to face them that you begin to develop a lot of resiliency and power to be able to, to move through those. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah May, and this is a show all about exploring messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Hey everyone, welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. I am so excited about today's show, but real quick, as we're going through this series, the sex series, I would love to hear from you. Are you enjoying the series? Are you finding it helpful? Is it raising more questions about topics you'd like me to expand on? If so, uh, you can reach me at Instagram at Sarah May Writes. Just message me there, or you can email me at podcast at saramay.com. I would love to hear your thoughts and questions. One more thing. Your reviews have been amazing, you guys. I read them and I am so, so grateful. And also those reviews help others know whether or not they should listen to the show. So I really appreciate them. If you'd be willing to leave a review this week, I would love to send you a small gift. So if you leave a review, just make sure you let me know that you left one by messaging me on Instagram at Sarah May Writes or emailing me at podcast at saramay.com. Okay, now back to today's show and why I'm so excited. I have Jay Stringer joining me to talk about our unwanted sexual behavior and thoughts. Jay is a therapist who is particularly interested in helping people find healing from sexual brokenness and even more specifically, by helping people listen to their lust. He says that sexual fantasies are roadmaps and they pinpoint the location of your past harm and highlight the current roadblocks that keep you from freedom. He says if we pay attention, our sexual brokenness will reveal the way to healing. In addition to being a therapist, Jay is an ordained minister, although he's not currently practicing, he's focusing on his therapy work. And he's also the author of the fantastic book, which I highly recommend, called Unwanted, How Sexual Brokenness Reveals Our Way to Healing. All right. With that said, Jay, welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Sarah, it is so good to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's really, I'm, I'm so excited. I heard you first on uh, the Adam Young's podcast, The Place We Find Ourselves. Yes. And... Um, the minute I heard you and, you know, the things you were saying, I immediately bought your book. I immediately showed my husband. We immediately started watching all of the things that you have. <laughs> and we were just blown away by your message because you don't hear it often. And so we're going to be diving into all of that today. Yeah, can't wait. Well, some of it, not all of it. Everybody's just going to have to go buy the book and <laughs> to, to really go deep. But I just want to start with a really sort of basic get to know you question because I don't know the answer to this, which is what led you into counseling and ministering and specifically into working with unwanted sexual behaviors? Sure. Yeah. So I think that's a, that's a two part answer. The first would be, you know, as a, as a therapist, men and women were arriving in my office that had almost no understanding of what freedom from sexual brokenness 
uh, actually entailed. So I would say if they grew up as kind of evangelicals, they would practice what I refer to as just lust management. And that's kind of the bounce your eyes, uh, slap a rubber band around your wrist. If you're having an attract, you know, a, an unwanted thought, uh, maybe phone a friend, get into some accountability, uh, and then also get internet monitoring on your computer. And yet, you know, as one of my friends said to me recently, he said, Jay, when I've been having the same conversation with my accountability partner for 15 years, something isn't working. But mm. simultaneously, uh, you know, I practice out of Seattle, Washington, pretty progressive city. And a lot of times people would come in uh, just kind of believing that sexual shame and stigma were the primary problems uh, that they were facing. So the kind of theory was, if we could just get rid of the shame about our sexual choices, then we would be liberated. And kind of what I found was both of those paradigms really failed to invite people to understand the path that actually got them to the particular choice and behavior they were making. And so uh, just reading a lot of Christian literature, uh, a lot of just kind of books on this topic, I, I just wasn't finding too many sources that were actually inviting people uh, to ask the question of why. Um, so to actually make meaning out of the sexual choices that they were making, whether that was <clears throat> a particular sexual fantasy or a, um, you know, a porn search that they kept going back to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that was the decision to do research. And I asked about 4,000 men and women to kind of give me a sense of their story. What were the formative events that they went through uh, from bullying to abuse to what were their relationships with their parents? And then started asking questions about what we refer to as an arousal template. So basically, what are the thoughts, images, sensations that you find arousing. And we wanted to kind of do some deep dive analytics into, you know, could sexual brokenness, the use of pornography, infidelity, buying sex, could those behaviors be predicted based on the parts of someone's story that they had never addressed? And mm. uh, long story short, it can be. Uh, so that's, that's the gist of what we found was that uh, a person's sexual brokenness is not a life sentence to sexual shame or addiction. Uh, it's a it's a roadmap to healing. Mm. Uh, so that was kind of on the professional standpoint. And then I would say on a, on a personal standpoint, you know, I, I went to a seminary, a grad school uh, that had this adage of you can take no one further than you have been yourself. Mm. Uh, and so it kind of built into that counseling program was really just the sense of, do you know your own sexual brokenness? Do you know the stories that have informed uh, for me as a man struggling with pornography, do I, do I know the stories that actually led to that? Do I, do I have a sense as to why I'm drawn to particular porn themes and not to others? Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, I think central to what it means to be a Christian, especially as a male Christian these days, is I have to know that I am the person, I'm the person most in need of redemption in my marriage, uh, in my counseling practice. So if mm -hmm. I am not kind of turning to face my own sexual shame, my own sexual violations, uh, then how can I really have the integrity to invite my clients uh, to face some of their, um, some of their complicated heart? <laughs> as well. Nice. Yeah. So uh, that was the, the gist of, you know, the, the current conversation that we have in Christianity uh, is it's not only not helpful, it actually keeps the cycle of addiction going. And so mm. there was 
just that sense of hell no, like literally mm-hmm. hell no, not on mm-hmm. my watch. Am I going to continue to consign uh, individuals and marriages to a lifetime of futility with this issue? Oh, that's, that is so great. I love how you said that you invite people to ask why it's an invitation. It's not forced. You don't have to do it, but it's an invitation to healing and to ask the questions. And I just really love your approach real quick so that my listeners know that pornography is not just a man issue, which I think probably most of them know, but maybe they don't. You were telling me what is the percentage or, um, what you were saying about women and viewing pornography? Yeah. So part of, and this, uh, this will vary according to the study, but I, I would say on average, uh, they're estimating that about a third of all pornography users are now women. Wow. Um, and so, you know, it's one of those issues that especially in the church, we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And so if men have a level of shame with this issue of pornography, you can kind of just imagine the level of shame and silence that women are under with regard to this issue. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them have kind of grown up with either, you know, their dad's pornography or the internet and receiving a lot of, you know, texts, uh, sex, different websites that have kind of shaped them from mm-hmm. very early on in their childhoods. And yeah. so, uh, it's yeah, it's one of those tragic things right now where so much of male violence against women uh, is now very much affecting the f- female sexual life as well. Yeah. Thank goodness. It's like you said, like it's not a life sentence, our addictions and all of these things. And that gives us hope. And I'm so grateful. But yeah. one of the real quick, I just have a question about this. When you categorize pornography, would you say that we could also say that when we're talking about these things about women and pornography that we could also include maybe their fantasy life? Like would that sort of be lumped in together? Sure. I I mean, the the reason why I picked the phrase unwanted sexual behavior is I I don't want to pathologize everything as an addiction, Yeah. uh, but neither do I want to kind of categorize everything as like whatever you want to choose for yourself is Mm -hmm. great and fair game. Because I I would say people are very complicated. They're they're very ambivalent about their sexual choices. So uh, we can talk about this later on in the show, but you know, it really common for women to come in to do an intensive with me me, mm-hmm. uh, primarily because they feel like they cannot reach climax without some type of a vile fantasy. Yeah. Um, and so they may not struggle with porn, maybe they do, but at some level they find that there's an unwanted dimension of their sexual life that mm. they want to address. And yes. so uh, that's what I um, am inviting people into is kind of what's the meaning of that? Where does that come from? So unwanted sexual behavior could be the use of porn, could be a fantasy, could be infidelity, could be hookups, but it's it's essentially any dimension of your sexual life or thought life that at the end of the day, you wish was not part of it. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I just want to take a quick moment to let you know that this whole podcast developed because of a book I wrote called The Complicated Heart, Loving Even When It Hurts. And it's the story of how I learned to love and forgive my alcoholic mother, but really it's for anyone who has or is dealing with a difficult or dysfunctional relationship and is asking questions like, how do you forgive when the wound is still open? If you enjoy this podcast, I think you'll enjoy the book. 
The Complicated Heart can be found anywhere books are sold, and the link to it is in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the show. Yes, I'm glad that you addressed that because I don't want people to tune out if they think it's just, well, I don't look at pornography, but <laughs> but what's wrong in this other area, <laughs> you know? So, yes. and I was telling no, you, yeah, go oh, go ahead. As one of my seminary professors said, uh, Dr. Dan Allender, he's he's uh, who said in our, we love. <laughs> oh, you do. Great. Yeah, I learned so much from him. But I mean, that was kind of an initial course in marriage and family and kind of sexuality. He just said, the bedroom is the noisiest room in the entire house. Your mother is there, your father is there, your past lovers are there, your porn history is there. Um, and I, I found that to be exceedingly true, not only in my own life, but clients' lives where you just, I mean, it's, there is so much noise. There's so much uh, data that our minds mm. are consistently uh, filing through. Uh, and so I think just to be able to invite people to just kind of say, all of us have a level of noise, uh, yes. that we need some clarity and understanding for. Yes. And I think the key point is that noise is going to continue to persist until you listen to what the message that it's trying to deliver to you. Yes, which actually leads me to a question that I want to ask you, which is your premise of your book and your what you're doing with your life, helping feel their unwanted sexual behavior. You say that it begins with listening to our lust. So can you just talk a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. So I know for many listeners, this might be like a big paradigm shift because you've been taught kind Huge of crucify, paradigm shift. <laughs> yeah, crucify the desires of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, turn away from it, run. And and part of what I would say is uh, we really need to be curious about our sexual life. So yes. kind of if you need scriptural background for this, this is the Psalm 139. Uh, basically, the psalm is saying, investigate my heart, uh, interrogate it, find out if there's any kind of way that does not lead to salvation within me. Uh, or the language of Romans 12 too, uh, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And so my point to a lot of kind of just fundamentalists and many evangelicals is how can you transform your sexual life if you don't understand it? Mm. Uh, and so I think central to the scriptures of the way that we see God moving throughout human history is that God is God is moving in with questions to people. So Adam has just eaten of the fruit that he was commanded not to eat from. And God doesn't say, bounce your eyes from the next tempting piece of fruit. He says, like, where are you? Mm. Or to Hagar, who has been, uh, some commentators would say, uh, sexually assaulted, certainly traumatized Mm -hmm. by the first family of our faith. The angel of the Lord shows up and says, where do you come from? And where are you going? Mm. Uh, so I think that's what we have to begin to ask. And so the the way that I work with my clients and kind of I have an online course that does this as well. Uh, but I kind of ask people to imagine their sexual life as a house uh, and kind of just imagine that it's late in the evening, early in the morning, whatever time of day. And you hear that familiar knock of kind of lust that's encouraging you to act out <clears throat> some way sexually. Uh, what I think we've done a lot of times is trying to tell men and women to put a force field around their house in the form of internet monitoring mm. to kind of keep any impure thoughts or data or websites out of the house. Uh, or we tell people to phone a friend for backup uh, 
or, you know, we might just say, shoot that intruder mm-hmm. and, and get rid of it. Or for many of us, we, we just let the intruder in and it ransacks our whole house and kind of we're left in the devastation. We're left in the sexual betrayal. Uh, and, uh, part of my approach would just be, what would it mean for a man, a woman struggling with sexual brokenness to go out onto the front porch and begin to ask their lust questions? Like, why is it that this particular porn fantasy has been appealing to me since I was 14 years old? Uh, why is it that in order to climax, I have to go to this type of sexual fantasy with this coworker or this kind of, uh, headless female being violated. Um, so w- why is that? Um, and I think what we find in community and in kind of investigation is that uh, we're going to learn uh, quite a bit about how our sexual life came to be just through being curious about it. So that would be the approach is, is to listen to it, study it, ask it questions, and uh, you will learn things about yourself that... Uh, it will shock you, mm-hmm. surprise you, uh, but eventually heal you. I just love that. And I was telling you earlier that I had a counselor once who had said to me, um, don't judge yourself in the middle of it, but instead get curious and ask why. The same thing that you're doing or what you're saying is that instead of like beating yourself up and allowing more shame to come in, it's not accepting, you know, sin or any of those things, but it's just going, okay, what is this trying to tell me? That's right. And I love, I love that approach. And interestingly, you talked about if we don't understand our unwanted sexual behavior or where it's coming from, we are more likely to be ashamed of it. Like we're going to actually have more shame. Yes. Yeah. And you talk about the importance of facing our shame. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to hit that in just a little bit, but um, before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about trauma <laughs> because um, something else you talk about in your book is how very often what we'll find as we trace our fantasies or what we're searching for with pornography or whatever it is that we are in fact possibly reenacting mm-hmm. trauma of our childhood, whether that is you know, abuse or I guess whatever it might be. And so I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit more in the, on the trauma aspect and how it is that all of that, why, why would that, why would we possibly be reenacting our okay. abuse? Okay. Yeah. What's going on there? Dive in deep. So yeah, so this is, I mean, I quote this, uh, one of the world leading trauma experts is a guy named uh, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. And what he says is that trauma is not just, uh, you know, some event that happened to us long ago, but it's the ongoing imprint of that event on us today. Mm. Uh, so, you know, as I often say, middle school is a prototype of hell <laughs> for so many. <laughs> I have two middle schoolers. <laughs> okay. So you Ooh. are in, in the land of hell. And that, that, that's, that's a world of trauma. Like that yeah. there is bullying, there is humiliation. Mm. Uh, so when I, you know, you know, part of my story was that I was a pretty overweight kid uh, in eighth grade. I had the nickname of Donut, grew up in the era of the Pillsbury Doughboy oh. uh, commercials. And so kids used to put their finger into my belly and go, Ahoo! 
Um, And so that happened, you know, I was born in 83. That happened when I was 13. I can't do math. Is that 96? I don't. uh, Somewhere in that range. Somewhere in there. So I was 13. And so, you know, in, in, in many ways, uh, if my shirt is off and my stomach is being revealed, what year does it feel like in my body? Well, it, it, you know, it's 2020, but year, what, you, what year does it feel like for me? Well, it feels like 1993. Mm. Um, and that's that sense of, you know, we might try and be done with trauma, but trauma is not done with us. And so trauma mm. is stored in our body. Uh, and so especially when it comes to kind of sex, like, you know, we were talking a little bit Uh, before the show of just like sometimes when people are sexually touched, they might flinch. Uh, Mm -hmm. Something of them might go offline. And what is that? That's a trauma response. And so we have a a portion of our brain called the amygdala. And the amygdala is basically fight, flight, or freeze when it goes off. So its its sole job is to kind of detect threats. Yes. And so if I go to the zoo with my daughter, we can kind of look at the jaguar exhibit and the the role of my amygdala in that place is to say, get the hell out of here. That thing is going to eat you and your daughter. Run, <laughs> run, 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 run. Mm-hmm. The beauty of the way that our brains are also designed is that I also have, we have what's called a hippocampus, which kind of stores memory and insights. And so the hippocampus is kind of what Vander Kolk refer, refers to as the uh, essentially the watchtower. So it's looking out over your life and it's kind of helping you to integrate different memories and experiences. So while my amygdala is saying, you know, get out of here, yeah. my hippocampus is saying, actually, there's like four or five inches of plexiglass here. You are completely fine. So just rest and enjoy this animal. Mm. Uh, and so what we've learned in trauma is that if you have gone through sexual abuse or some form of abuse, you actually have an 8 to 12% reduction in the size of your hippocampus. Mm. So what does that mean? Well, it means that if you are in a sexual scene and you have a past history of sexual trauma, your amygdala is going to be going off, even though you might be with your husband, who's a good man. Uh, maybe you have conflicting experiences of being with him. Your body is doing what it's supposed to be doing, which is saying there there might be a threat here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really kind of the invitation is that, you know, all of us, nothing prepares us to be uh, kind of sexual in a marriage. Only kind of a lot of trial and error and conversations will actually prepare us for a good sex life. And so, so much of what we have to go through, particularly in those relationships, is being able to work through our trauma responses, to work through a lot of the noise that's coming up in us. And so, uh, you know, I kind of mentioned middle school being a place of a lot of trauma, a lot of humiliation. Well, then what ends up happening for a lot of men in porn is that porn is not about lust. It's not about some woman who looks like she's cute and innocent and acquiescing. Porn is about power. It's about Mm. a level of humiliation. And so why do a lot of men, I think, go to porn? Well, it gives them an arena to reestablish some of the power dynamics that they have, they may have known cruelty. They may have known violation against their, their own bodies. Uh, And so then what becomes arousing to them is the ability to kind of 
of control to dominate, at least to have some level of power and control over someone in a, in the porn scene, because they feel like they don't have it anywhere else in life. Mm. Uh, so all that sense of our trauma is alive and well in our bodies. And if we are not listening to it, caring for it, uh, getting into therapy, talking to friends about it, uh, I, I can assure you that it's, it's directing your life. Okay. My brain is exploding just a little bit. Okay. So would you say that, cause you were saying like, if someone's victimized, essentially what you're saying is they'll go to pornography or a fantasy life where then they become a victimizer in order to gain back power. Is that, is that kind of what you're saying? Well, what we found in some of the research where was that, you know, if a, if a man grew up with a pretty strict father, mm-hmm. um, and let's say he was dealing with a lot of lack of purpose in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then one, you know, one past intensive participant that I'm thinking of, uh, his boss, you know, he was in, in, I'm just making stuff up uh, to protect his identity. But mm-hmm. let's say he was an investment brokerage and mm-hmm. had a, you know, a, a really competitive field uh, and a really kind of bullying boss. Uh you know, and then when he began to talk to me about the specifics of his sexual fantasy life, part of what he described was wanting to kind of see a woman acquiesce to her knees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for him, that sense of being able to find someone being subordinate to him. But then as we began to trace back some of that in his story, uh, he had bosses that basically stood over him and barked. Uh, mm-hmm. He had a father who ordered him down to his knees and, and hit him with a lampshade. And so there was a lot of kind of themes in his story that were about humiliation and subordination. Mm-hmm. But then porn gave him the ability to find power over that. And so we see that not in all cases with men, uh, but a lot of times the appeal to porn is to give them a realm where they can find power. But women... Uh, I would say disproportionately, if they were harmed or violated, the sexual fantasies that they developed uh, were often the reenactment of those things, where the, you know, the themes that they were drawn to had much more to do with levels of violence or violation done to women. Uh, And so I think that's, that's part of what the research showed. Why? I'm just trying to, and I know that... (laughs) we are complicated in the mind and the body and the things it's supposed to do and how sin has warped things and all of these things. But it just is so fascinating to me that, um, and the reason you guys that I'm asking Jay, this is because one of the things I learned about in his book was that women have actually more, or, uh, I don't want to say this wrong. They're more likely to watch violent pornography than men. Is or they had a higher uh, disproportionately to men. Uh, the the I can't remember the exact quote over. Either, I'm gonna find it. Some, some level of, and this is from Seth Stevens Davidowitz's research. Uh, he wrote a book called "Everybody Lies" that looked at a lot of Google trends, mm. and I can't remember his exact line, but he said if there's a genre of pornography that disproportionately appeals to women. Uh, his research found that it would be kind of violence against women or some level of, uh, you know, he uses pretty graphic language to describe what those exact porn searches are. Mm-hmm. But And that's what my research found as well, that, you know, women that wanted to have harm done to them yeah. uh, or that, that was the sexual fantasy of a woman being harmed, 
those fantasies disproportionately appealed to women. That is so interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, what do you, what do you, I mean, I, I think part of what I would say is, uh, you know, as a man, <laughs> I, I'm not making any sense of this is the official analysis. I think female sexual arousal is one of the most uh, kind of complicated, mysterious, beautiful things I have ever <laughs> tried to research or study. Mm-hmm. So I don't, I don't make any efforts to claim that I know exactly what's happening. Yeah. I just know from my work with clients and just when you look at the rates of a third of all women these days will be beaten or sexually abused in their lifetime. One in five women are going to be raped worldwide. Uh, you know, there is so much sexual violation against women uh, done at the hands of men. And so when you look at a lot of the, you know, pornography that especially adolescents and girls are exposed to, Mm -hmm. I know that all of those things are affecting our sexual thought life. And so to me, that's, that's a lot of what women will describe, you know, a woman might say, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I can't reach climax without going to some type of vile fantasy of a woman being violated. But then as we journey through her story, she brings me into moments as an adolescent moments as a, uh, you know, being a freshman, sophomore in college Mm -hmm. where so much of that violation actually took place against her. And so in the reenactment of trauma, that's what our body's job, that's what our mind's job is, is to keep bringing certain memories, certain intrusive thoughts to the surface so that we can actually attend to them. And I think in that way, it's such a gift. And I think that the harm we have done is say, push it away. You're bad. Don't think about it. As opposed to the gift is, like you said, like this is an invitation to get curious and say why, but we don't know that. We're not taught to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where shame just plays such a huge part. And you even talk about, um, I can't remember the word you used, which you use a ton, so I'm sorry I forget jet lag. (laughs) (laughs) But just that sense of giving up. Like, I can't control this. I can't stop this. And I've not been taught to look at it and ask questions. So I just resign myself to it. Maybe it's resignation. Yes. Maybe that's the word that you Resignation. Use. Yep, that's it. And I think another thing that my brain just clicked as you were talking with this is that you like, okay, so when men have an experience where they're feeling like, like the strict father or the strict boss, they go in and they gain power through the fantasy but I also think I, that even though women are reenacting maybe sexual violence against another woman in her fantasy, I think it's another, I think it's her trying to gain the power back too. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just processing that because it is a sense yeah. of um, trying to get back power if it's all about a loss of power and being out of control. Yeah, if that's part of the strategy is yeah. I don't want to feel out of control, right. but if I can see someone else undergo it, I can at least kind of control yeah. <clears throat> where the story goes. And speaking of feeling out of control and powerlessness, you say that power and anger, is it power and anger are always linked? Is that what? Yeah, well, lust and anger. and power. L- Lust yeah. and anger. Yes. And power is a dynamic in that. Yes. Yeah. Can you talk to us about that? That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, so I, part of the visual that I would make is if you, if you were to think about 
in some ways, the Mississippi River. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Mississippi River exists because of a lot of the tributaries that flow into it. Mm-hmm. Like the Missouri is the primary tributary. There's also the Tennessee, the Arkansas. So it's it's powerful because there are multiple tributaries, multiple rivers that flow into that. Mm-hmm. And I would say sexual brokenness is very similar to that river. Um, but I think what's happened in evangelicalism is that we have we've basically said lust is the primary issue that all men are dealing with. And so let's just try and stop that tributary. Mm. And what we find is that doesn't work. Well, why doesn't it work is because anger is, I would say, even more central to a man's arousal template than lust is. Um, so the background would be, you know, if, if I'm working with a client, he makes a bid for sex with his wife, his wife says no. And then an hour later, he doesn't know how to confront himself, soothe himself. And so then he begins to go looking at porn. Mm-hmm. He might say, I felt bored or I was self-medicating, but I think the reality is he was pretty pissed off at his wife. Mm-hmm. And part of the way that he could get back at her is to um, pursue pornography. Uh, And so I think that's part of what we have to grapple with is that, um, you know, men, if the curse for a man kind of outlined in Genesis 3 is a lot of thorns, thistles, futility, the sweat of his brow, he's going to get through life. Pornography offers a world without thorns and thistles. I can get exactly what I want when I want it. And so in that sense, it's not just that I, I'm lusting for someone attractive, but far more, uh, you know, I am angry that my life has not turned out the way it is. I'm angry at my spouse. I'm angry at my employer. And uh, in pornography, I can find someone that will serve me. Uh, so I think that's that's part of what we have to invite men to address is not just the lust, but also the anger and the power that flow into their sexual brokenness. And all of this is subconscious, right? I mean, I'm, it's like no one is going, oh, I'm angry or I'm feeling like I'm being belittled at work or whatever. And so I'm going to pursue, like, usually we just have no idea why we're doing what we're doing. Was, would you say that's true or not? I think on on one reading that is true. I think people might feel kind of some of the neural... Uh, trying to think how I would put it. They, I mean, I think they might feel pretty rejected. Their body might just kind of feel like it's going offline. Uh, They feel really stuck in life. Uh, They might have some level of self-contempt of like, you know, nothing works out for me. Mm. And so I think part of what they're trying to merge with is in some ways something that is self-medicating. Like I want to feel a little bit better. But what they also know, I think if you press most people is like, you know, that after you go to that, like six cocktail, after you go to porn for the 1000th time, you're not going to feel better about yourself. You're going to feel even worse. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I think most addictive processes are not about pleasure. They're far more about judgment. And so, uh, you know, part of what I think people are seeking out is kind of exhibit A, (laughs) uh, evidence for why I am such a broken man or woman. Uh, So although that's not the easiest reading for people, Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's a really important thing to kind of invite people beyond just the self-medicating boredom language to say, you know where this story goes at ends up going. Uh, it goes to judgment. It goes to self-contempt. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. That's yes. Very (laughs) true. Oh my gosh. There's like probably a million things I could ask you and I'm trying to figure out what to ask in the next couple of minutes. 
I think one of the, because uh, I do want to get to sort of talking about what, you know, what, what is a first next step? <laughs> what is a first next step that kind of feels mm-hmm. weird, but they're listening to this. So that could be a first step or maybe they've begun or whatever yeah. the first next step for the listener who wants to find healing. So I want to touch on that, but let's go back to shame for a minute because I think yeah. just like you were saying with the judgment and the self contempt, and then it's this like awful cycle of, I can't quit. There's no point in trying like blah, blah, blah. And then, shame just feels so consuming and you tell a really neat story in your book if you're willing to share it about the the guy in the sharks do you remember the story <laughs> yeah you tell that yeah, and then totally. how that relates to shame yes i'd be glad to um people love the story <laughs> um it's because it's so like it's oh, so good yeah yeah okay and then i i found another example of it that i'll need to go back to uh, so the story is basically, if people are familiar with the show Shark Week on the Discovery Channel, uh, the videographer for that show, Shark Week, uh, is a guy named Andy Casagrande. And he was interviewed a couple years ago, and they said, Andy, you are freaking crazy. What in the world do you do when you're in the in the waters with the great white shark? He doesn't have a cage. He's just kind of going in only with himself and the camera. And what he says is that it's pretty counterintuitive, but when there's a shark that begins swimming at you, you are to turn and face that shark. And what he says is that you kind of go up and uh, bring the camera to the shark's nose, and the shark kind of bonks its nose against the camera lens, realizes that it's not food, and then it has its own amygdala reaction where it kind of swims off. Uh, Like, wait a minute, wait a minute. This isn't the way it's supposed to go. (laughs) Everything (laughs) in the whole entire ocean swims away from me. What is this thing doing uh, that's swimming right at me? And so the shark swims off. And Andy says, when the shark swims off, that's when I make my escape. But then he has this amazing phrase that says, when you do not act like prey, they will not treat you like prey. Uh, and to me, that has so much to do. I don't think I've heard a better statement with regard to how to work with shame and the great white memories of our lives. The, what comes naturally to most of us is we try and swim away from our trauma. Mm-hmm. We try and swim away from our sexual brokenness. But what does that do? Well, it sets us up to live as prey to the accusations of shame. Yes. Oh, wait. And so part of, Sorry. Yeah. When you say swim away from... That's not just not facing it. That's like saying it's not it's not a big deal or I'm fine, right? Like with that Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Any minimizing, any uh denial of just kind of like, yeah, this isn't a big issue for me. I only struggle with this every 3 months. Um mm. it's not that significant. It's, it's not It's not that uh, bad. It's not harming anybody. Mm-hmm. That that's all a form of swimming away. And then what is that set up? Well, it's going to keep coming back 3 months later, 6 months later, a year later. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I mean, that, that was Casa Grande's point is when you don't act like prey, they are not going to treat you like prey. And so that's the invitation that I would say is swim towards those memories, towards those behaviors that you actually think are going to kill you. Um, because it's in turning to face them that you begin to develop a lot of resiliency and power to be able to, to move through those. Yeah. And I mean, I think you would say this to everybody listening is that it's not as easy as just facing it. I mean, it's going to be a <laughs> like a, a very hard, <laughs> painful, agonizing time. That You are too honest, Sarah. <laughs> Because I've done it lots of times. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Still doing yeah, <and> it. 
Yes. And that's where I tell most people when it comes to kind of recovering is, you know, you have often a couple choices when it comes to pain. You can deal with the pain of sexual brokenness in your life, uh, or you can kind of begin to deal with the pain of what stories in your life are contributing to it. But oh. uh, you can't, you cannot escape pain. Uh, pain, pain is central to madness, but it's also central to healing. Yeah. And I always think because God is so kind and he's the leader of inviting us to heal, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's the one who's really making the invitation to heal our broken hearts and bind up our wounds. And I always think, listen, you can, you can push it off now. But because God loves us, He can just bring it back up again, you know, through the way He made our bodies, our minds. It's all the invitation is always on the table, and I think, well, you might as well deal with it now because He's just going to bring it up when you're ninety nine. Yes, totally. And and like, why not have fifty years of like, or you know, maybe like a a season of horrible facing of the shame, but then you get this time of delight, and it doesn't own you anymore, and you're not in bondage, or maybe another piece is in bondage, but then, you know, God will help you with that. But, yes. oh my gosh, if you just keep not facing it, I feel like you might be 90 years old and decide to face it, and that's great. Praise God. But my goodness, you could have had all those years. Yes, so well said. Yeah, it reminds me, I don't know why I'm thinking of this story right now, but uh, a friend, two friends of mine uh, went out hiking in the Cascade Mountain Range, kind of east of Seattle. And on their way back, they were in a car accident. And uh, one of my friends, two kids were also in the car. And so one of my friends was actually kind of mildly injured, had a neck brace around his neck when the ambulance showed up. They took him to a hospital to make sure that there weren't any kind of spinal issues beyond just kind of the initial neck pain. And what one of my friends told me is that when he got back home with his boys, uh, within about five, 10 minutes of coming back into the house, they recreated the accident scene. And one of their boys became the ambulance. The other one became (laughs) my injured friend. Mm. And they kind of worked that story through to a point of being able to kind of say, okay, now Josh is now healed. He's doing great. We got the ambulance. It was all there. So, I mean, you can kind of imagine that from a child's perspective, really Mm. scary see a friend, see a, a good friend in pain, there's an ambulance. And part of the way that their trauma repetition worked was we actually need to undergo this again, but then have the ability to kind of work it through redemptively. Mm. And I think that that's part of the point is, you know, so many of the stories that have happened to our bodies are about humiliation, degradation. Maybe there's no one else in the room. Maybe it's a really toxic uh, abuser or perpetrator, mm. but it's in going through those stories again with community, with a kind yes. therapist, with someone who can hold your story that some of those original feelings, the the associations, the grief uh, mm. that was never allowed to come out uh, actually is able to resurface, but this time in a in a deeply redemptive way. Oh, that is so good. I'm so glad you told that story. That is so yeah. helpful. Well, I know that we have to wrap up. And so for the woman, women listening, or maybe there's men, I don't know, what is sort of like, let's say someone's listening and they're like, oh, wow, I never thought of that before. I never thought to listen to my lust. I never thought that, you know, I shouldn't just beat myself Mm -hmm. up if I have a bad thought or I looked at something online that I shouldn't, you know. Yeah. But instead to get curious, what is their next step? What is, is it, I mean, obviously you guys, you should 
all go and order the book Unwanted by Jay Stringer. I'm going to have links in the show notes. But what next? So I would say two things. The the first would be, I mean, definitely the the book. The other <clears throat> resource that I was going to mention is I have what's called a sexual behavior self-assessment. Mm-hmm. And essentially that's 160 questions that's going to ask about your relationship with your mom, your dad, uh, significant moments that you've lived through in your life, and uh, very specific questions about your sexual fantasy life and kind of what sustains them. So that will generate a 40 page uh, report that basically says, here's some of the likely origins of where all this stuff began for you uh, and some kind of current things that are going on in your life that will sustain them. Yeah. Just to add to that real quick, my husband and I both did that. Uh And so for everybody listening, like it's very good. It was very helpful for starting points for us to go, oh, that's interesting. Like, what is that about? What's that about? So I do recommend what he is um, suggesting to you all. Yeah. So that will kind of give you, and again, it's, it's, it, it flies over your life at 10, 15,000 feet, but it's at least yes, going yes. to invite you into being curious about some of the connections between how does your sexual brokenness relate to your life story. Um, so I would say, try that assessment, uh, get some clues into where all this stuff is coming from. Uh, and, and then I think secondly, I, I mean, I think it's really important to be able to kind of be in conversation with a good friend with regard to this material. Uh, And, uh, you know, what often comes up is people are like, you know, I don't want to talk about (laughs) a specific sexual fantasy or porn search. Mm -hmm. And I'm not recommending that people start there at all. But I think it's, it's a level of what's the scaffolding that you need to put in place in order to eventually have that conversation Uh, with a good friend, let's say six months, a year from now. Mm. So don't start with the sexual fantasy. Start with, you know, I'm starting to process some of what happened to me when I was 13. Mm. Uh, And I don't think what I've ever told anybody was, you know, my dad kept a porn stash next to his bedside table. And not only did my brothers look at it, but I also looked at it. Um, or, you know, that there was something that I went through with regard to middle school and dating that I just kind of said, you know, I wasn't fully present to it, but I think it was somewhat consensual, um, and have kind of masked the reality of the assault that, that you actually lived through. So I think that there's ways of, instead of just kind of revealing, well, I've had an affair or, uh, I'm struggling with this type of porn search, there's at least a wider context of the stories that actually brought you to that. And so I think that's the role of whether it's a small group, whether it's uh, just good friends that you're meeting with in coffee is to begin to kind of ponder your story with someone else and to get a sense of where is the story moving? Um, Kind of that question to Hagar, where do you come from? So when you get coffee, when you get a drink with a friend, that should really be some of the topic of conversation is like, where, where do you actually come from? Like, I know you're from DC. I know you're from Seattle. I know you're from wherever, but tell me about where you come from. What were the stories that have marked your life? And for everybody listening, I think just knowing that you aren't alone and you aren't crazy and you're not disgusting, like Mm -hmm. when you hear us talking about this and maybe you're somebody who's listening, who has looked at pornography or you struggle with that, or maybe you have an addiction. Um, Jay, what constitutes an addiction? When do you know something has moved to an addiction? 
There are a lot of different <clears throat> theories about that, but um, I mean, I think at, at some level, th- there's some level of madness associated with it, where it's not just something that I feel like a pleasurable hit every time I do it. Uh, I begin to feel really miserable about who I am, what I've done, certainly a sense of withdrawal. If I don't have it, then I have to keep going, I have to find it again. Uh, oftentimes the addiction, a, a particular amount of alcohol, particular amount of porn or type of porn used to be appealing, but I actually need more and more in mm. order to achieve the same effect. Uh, so that sense of escalation in your life, uh, withdrawal, certainly. And then just, I mean, it, it depends on, you know, some people, the, they might be looking at porn multiple times a day. Other people, it might be more like once a week, once a month. But it's that whole cycle of addiction where, you know, they're trying to get some work done. They really want to be faithful. And yet they just find themselves when they're alone drifting off into a type of porn search. So you kind of just have to look at what is the debris of my life? Uh, Mm. Am I able to freely choose uh, stepping away from this? Or is there something in my body, something in my neurochemistry that keeps kind of almost forcing me back into it? I think you're in the presence of an addiction at that point. That's really helpful. So again, or if your fantasies are getting really like, why does this have to happen? And you feel gross, like start asking, start, start to get curious. And Jay, please tell me there's counselors all over the U S like you, because I need to know that there are so I can tell women if you really are beginning this journey and you need to talk it out and, um, go through therapy. Like, please tell me there are other counselors who are leaning into this ideology there are some, and I, and I think that that's part of the dilemma in the field is I don't want to go off in it, but there's, you know, there's the certified sex addiction therapist, and then there's also the certified sex therapist, and they're often at odds with one another. Mm. Uh, so one kind of the critique of one is that they kind of overtly pathologize everything as an addiction, mm. and the critique on the other side is that they try and normalize everything mm. uh, without kind of seeing the addictive components. Yeah. So I think in some ways, if you, a good therapist is trauma-informed. They have a sense of attachment theory, the way that kind of formative events from childhood affect us. They also have some training in sexual addiction, uh, but also they have an understanding of sexual health. So the critique that I have of most Christian therapists is that they, in some ways they have a sense of kind of sexual sin um, and what's broken, but they have no idea of how to actually create a context for healthy sexuality to occur, even what healthy sexuality is. And so most pastors, most therapists have actually only received one class in human sexuality to Mm -hmm. become a master's level clinician or a doctor. And so all I can say is there's a lot of therapists out there that have no understanding of uh, healthy sexuality, that they have been Mm -hmm. kind of trained to kind of see most things as pathological rather than, you know, problems are how we grow. Mm. Uh, It's how we grow spiritually, sexually, emotionally, is through allowing the problem to be a crucible for growth. Yeah. So how booked are you? (laughs) I can already predict the emails I'm going to get. Like... I do in, I do intensives mm-hmm. um, with uh, people that come out to Seattle. And I think that, I mean, that's kind of down the line. I mean, I would love to do far more kind of group intensives for to be able to create a really safe place for 
you know, a group of five, 15 women Mm -hmm. to all come together to share their sexual brokenness, but far more to kind of attend to a lot of the wounds that have marked their life. So I don't have that structured if there's someone that... Let's work on it, Jay. Let's get it going. I'm in. Let's do it. Yeah. So I think that there's a way of kind of creating a, a, a retreat type of thing that's not just here's information about sexual brokenness, but far more let's learn about the particulars of one another's and... kind of be in a group process. So, uh, you know, unwanted launched. And then there's been a lot that I've had to keep up with, with the course and assessment. And so I, I have so many ideas, um, but just don't have enough time (laughs) at this point to to implement them all. You have worked with Dan Allender and he's doing this work. And I think he may have resources as well on his page, but totally. And yeah, he, I mean, they, they run what are called recovery groups for women who have known sexual abuse. Um, and so if you know, kind of right off the bat, that's your stories. I think Dan and kind of some of my colleagues that work, uh, alongside of him, they're female trained therapists and clinicians. Um, one of the best places to go, it's about five days, uh, with a a trained therapist kind of that you're working with daily and then group time with Dan as well. Um, those, those are excellent as well. So there needs to be more and more, um, cause what I'm doing, what Dan's doing, what you're doing, we, we can't, there's no way that we, have what we need at this point. The the supply is is too great or the demand is too great. I agree. Yeah. The demand is too great. It's that's so very, very true. Jay, thank you so much for giving us your time today and sharing with us. I'm very grateful. How can people find you? Yeah. Oh, uh, well, thank you for helping to break the silence and the stigma associated with this. I mean, what all what you are inviting your listeners to is, I mean, again, so many of us needed to hear this conversation decades ago. So yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my website is J a Y stringer.com. And there you can find a lot of kind of resources, uh, that I mentioned throughout the show, uh, and Instagram it's, I don't know if it's an underscore or whatever J Stringer was taken. So I think it's J Y underscore Stringer underscore something along those lines. Uh, so those are. Mm-hmm. I'm going to tell people exactly what it is. It's J underscore Stringer underscore. Okay. That's right. But Great. I'll have it linked yeah. in the show notes. Okay. Very cool. Thank you. Thank you so much. And maybe I'll get to snag you for a part two sometime. And are you working on any other books, by the way? I am. Yeah, that would be great. I would love to do a part two. And yes, yeah, started book number two. What is it a secret what it's about? Uh, not necessarily. I think I'm still trying to conceptualize in the same way that what I did with Unwanted of trying to get a sense of there is meaning in our fantasies. I would say that if you look at most of what's happening with mental illness, depression, anxiety, substance abuse, we are training people to try and reduce their anxiety rather than teaching them how to tolerate their anxiety and understand mm. their depression, their anxiety long enough to hear what it's trying to communicate to them. So again, the natural instinct is to get to move away from the pain, move away yes. from the symptom mm-hmm. rather than being able to say, no, your, your symptom is actually trying to invite you uh, to to care. So, I mean, even the word curiosity, the word cure, the root word of all of that is to care in, I believe it's Latin. So that, Oh, that's so good. 
that 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 wordplay of be curious. The cure is in the care. So when you actually begin to care for your story, you begin to care for the symptom. That's where they go away, um, not through just trying to get rid of it. Oh, that so is excellent. Okay, I'm a hundred percent going to interview you when that yeah. book comes out because I that's wonderful. Very excited. Yeah. All right, Jay. I will not keep you any longer. All right. Thank you again, my friend. They're so so fun to be with you. You all can find more about Jay at j-stringer.com. J-stringer. That link will be in the show notes, and there is where you can find everything about Jay, more resources, his course, and everything else. Uh, the show notes, usually I get people always asking me, where are the show notes? If you scroll down on whatever app you're using, um, the show notes are usually there. It'll say click details or click show notes or something like that, so you should be able to find them. All right, guys, that's all for today. Talk to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Complicated Heart Podcast. If you like this podcast, if you found it helpful, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not, so your review matters. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out the Complicated Heart Podcast.com.